Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Hope you got all your Christmas shopping done. Yes, sir. I wait until about December 23rd. That's when I get my done. I, I do better when the pressure's on. So I just stack them up there at the very end. And, of course, uh, try to figure out some way to make my wife think that I thought of this a long time ago, but I bought, what I bought for her. Uh, I don't lie. I don't lie. But I just don't tell her that I got it two days before. Well, guys, we are in a very exciting part of the Bible. It's called Revelation. It's at the very end. You should be able to find that one. And we have studied uh, Revelation 1, where Christ is revealed to us the way that He is right now, in resplendent glory. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we got the message from Him to the churches, what He really thinks about the church and His concern for us. And we saw that it wasn't altogether a real pretty picture. It is encouraging. He hasn't left us or abandoned us, even in our misbehavior. But then we come to chapter 4, and we started to touch on it last time. By the way, there are, there are two Thursdays that are technical. Last Thursday was one of them, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> and uh, we'll have one more of those toward the end when we get to Revelation chapter 20, because as you saw from those four interpretive uh, grids, they each look at Revelation 20 differently as well. And when we get there, we'll especially back up and show at least four different views of how the millennium is to be viewed in Revelation 20. And I'll have another big chart for you <laughs> at that point. Uh, but having laid that groundwork, we'll keep coming back to it because there, there are differences in the way these things are viewed. But uh, we'll, we're going to move on now and look at how we can benefit from this uh, great message. But as you could tell last time, uh, there's a variety of views, variety of views in this room, and uh, I was kind of pleased that there was a divided vote, not only on what you believe, but in what you thought I believe. That meant I probably re represented each view fairly. Uh, and uh, as I told you, I, I do have my own take on this, but uh, there's benefit from every one of those views because every one of them is from the Bible. We don't, they, they contradict each other, so they can't all be right but they all look at the Bible, and the main themes that are in Revelation come through in any of those views. So if your view does differ from mine, you just take it, uh, you just uh, change it, modify it to put it within your view. I think you'll come out with the same uh, general application uh, in each of the views. That's what's so interesting. So we won't get too tied up in it. But in Revelation chapter 4, we began to touch on it last time. We saw that what, what is really happening is that John is being allowed to be lifted up from the current situation in the church and to be able to see things from a heavenly perspective. And we began to see why that's so important for you and for me in our daily lives. But let's pick up and we'll read the whole chapter, uh, chapter 4. After this, that is, after he got the message about the churches, now he's going to have the vision of heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. Okay, chapters 4 and 5 really go together. And from chapter 4 and 5 emanates everything else uh, in the rest of Revelation. So this is kind of the starting point. John is being lifted up into heaven to see what's going on up there. And it will be from that throne's perspective that he understands everything else that is happening in uh, human history. Now, leave your finger there and turn back to Daniel. Can you find it? It follows Ezekiel in your Old Testament. It's about, I don't know, a little more than halfway uh, in your Bible. Daniel is a, a book that is known for many uh, things. Uh, first of all, Daniel and his friends uh, were found faithful in Babylon. These young men who stood against the tide of their own culture. But God spoke to and through Daniel gave him visions. And in Daniel chapter 7, I want us to see this vision that Daniel had because there are some striking parallels with what we just read in Revelation 4 and what we'll read next week in Revelation 5. Look at the beginning of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked And there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth, Between his teeth, it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, 
There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eye of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, now that's reviewing history and all the human powers. Now look, as we begin with verse 9, we'll see the parallels. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now I want us to notice here these parallels. And I'll have this for you in print next time. But look, there's a throne in heaven. And you see an introductory vision is mentioned, just as in chapter 4, verse 1 in Revelation. In Daniel 7, 9a, you get the throne in heaven, just as you do in Revelation 4, 2. And then you get God sitting on the throne. In 7, 9b, he says uh, he took his seat. And then you have God's appearance on the throne. Uh, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. And then you get fire before the throne. Look at 7.9d. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. So we get heavenly servants. By the way, there's a sea mentioned earlier in verses 2 and 3. It parallels with Revelation 4, 6. Heavenly servants, uh, thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000, that number will come back up in Revelation 5, stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So you have books before the throne and they are opened. And then uh, as uh, you will see in verses 13 and 14, in my vision, verse 13, at night, I looked and before me was one like a son of man. So you have a messianic figure. One like a son of man. Uh, find your place, Wilson. Uh, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And then you'll notice another parallel here with chapter 5 in Revelation, all peoples, nations, and tongues. He says here, nations and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You get the prophet's stress in 7.15. You get Daniel saying, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And of course, you have John in chapter 5 saying he was weeping because there was no one uh, worthy to open the uh, scroll and uh, its seals. In 7.16, uh, you have uh, Daniel counseled. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me an interpretation of things. And then in chapter 18, the saints are given authority to reign, which parallels with uh, Revelation 5.10. And then if you look at the end of Daniel 7, uh, you have this statement. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and serve Him. And that parallels with verse 10 in chapter 5, which says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So the saints are seated and given authority to reign. All these parallels, that uh, this comes from G.K. Beale in his commentary, his massive commentary on Revelation. 
And like I say, I'll give these to you next time, but this is just to show you really quickly the kinds of parallels that are between Daniel 7 and Revelation 4. You say, what difference does that make? Well, here's the difference it makes. If you want to understand the meaning of Revelation 4, you want to deal seriously with where these images are coming from. Now, we don't always know the sources of everything in the Bible, but when there's one this obvious, then we know that John is seeing things in accord with what was given us in Daniel 7 when God revealed the glory that is to come. Here's basically what's happening. John is communicating to us that the Christ event is that cataclysmic event which brings the end of history into being so that we are living at the end of history right now. Christ has inaugurated all of the promises that God had given His people in the Old Testament. So when you see these parallels, John is obviously seeing things in accord with what was given in Daniel chapter 7. God is revealing in Revelation 4 to John what He had previously revealed to Daniel hundreds of years before. So Christ is the big event. The Messiah, the Son of God, is culminating everything that God had promised in the past. Now let's look at what the meaning of this is then for those of us living in the uh, in between the ages of the first advent and the second advent. And this is those last days that are culminating the great promises of God. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we, we saw last time there is a throne in heaven. And we saw that God invites us to see heaven and there we get our center. Okay? So there is a throne. You go to, you go to heaven and there the main event is a throne. That's the center of everything. And that is so important for the day in which we live. And it's been important for every day. If you look back in the book of Jeremiah, the big complaint of the prophet is that he says he sees, uh, he sees people bowing down under every little god, under every spreading tree. Every little hilltop has a god. And that's the way it was in pagan Canaan. And when the children of Israel came in, they didn't always destroy those gods, those ancient shrines and places of worship. And, he, and even the Israelites would bow down before these hilltop gods. And Jeremiah later says, no, God's throne, this is in chapter 17 of Jeremiah, God's throne is in heaven, His sanctuary, or His throne is in Jerusalem. His sanctuary is there. There's where the people of God worship. So there's always a place, a throne, where God is seated, and that's where we're supposed to worship. And the fact is, you can look around today, and people go to their, their bank or their investor. There they worship. Uh, they, they go to pornography. There's where they worship. Uh, they drive a fancy car. That's what they worship. It's amazing. All the things that we worship and bow down before, those things which regulate our lives, which we consider greater than ourselves, which tell us what to do. Those are our gods, that which tells us what to do. And what God is saying to John is, look, there's a throne in heaven. That's where worship takes place. And so when we assemble all over the place to worship God, we're assembling really around the same throne. And that brings a center to life, which is so desperately needed. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn for just a moment to Colossians chapter 3. I mentioned this last time, but we didn't get a chance to look at it. And I'd love to do that with you now because uh, what John is, is getting in the midst of his own discouragement with the church that is weak, with the persecution against the church, the Roman Empire was oppressing the people of God. What's the church going to do? You need to get up into heaven and see what's really going on and see what 
see where the power is. In Colossians chapter 3, if you have an NIV, the head of it says rules for holy living. That's not inspired. That's just the editors of the NIV picking that title. But it's a pretty good title. Well, what are the rules for holy living? And in the first four verses of chapter 3, I think you get the most important rule. Here it is. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. So you see that He's saying, set your affections, your hearts, your ambitions on things above because that's where Christ is. See, this is the point. You want to set your heart where He is. Where is He? He's on the throne. And so that's what gets all of your affections, all of your ambitions. You set your ship headed straight toward heaven. It's amazing how there are some men who know Jesus Christ and are destined for heaven, but... Doggone it, sometimes you'd have a hard time figuring out which way their ship is going. And get your ship headed toward heaven. And there's so much to look forward to, as we will see through our study of Revelation. And that sets the stage for life. If you know you're going to heaven, and you know that it's glorious, then what do you have to fear here? The the worst scenario is that you'd die. Well, I guess the worst scenario is that it'd be a little painful before you go. Uh, Like like, uh, Woody Allen says, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, and uh, although I think Woody Allen ought to give some new consideration to, to dying, and I think he's a little bit more, more fearful than he thinks. But uh, So if you don't mind dying, if you've really dealt with that in your life, then what do you have to fear? And most of the mistakes that guys make are because of their fearfulness, lack of confidence, lack of knowing where they're going. And this is foundational. When you get this in your life and you're really headed for heaven and you're eager to get there, Uh, then you become much more useful in life, and life also takes on much more pleasure for you. So the first thing is you set your heart on it. Then you see in verse 2 of Colossians 3, this is not going to be easy. He's drawing a contrast. He says, not on earthly things. Now notice that. Not on earthly things, he says in verse 2. What's he saying? He's saying, if you're really going to be heavenly minded, you cannot set your ambitions on things here. So what are some of the things here? Well, materialism will fight heavenly mindedness. And if you're just constantly rolling over your mind, how, how much do I own? How big is my estate? How much power do I have? And that's, that's the currency that's constantly going through your mind. That's what you really care about. And that's what really floats your boat. And that's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night. You've got a problem. Because your ambitions and your affections, your joy, is established by materialism. And it's going to it's going to take away the heavenly-mindedness that you need. Uh, There are all kinds of other isms uh, that can take away heavenly-mindedness. Pluralism can take it away. The lack of truth, relativism, uh, can take away heavenly-mindedness. If everybody's going to heaven and heaven is kind of an amalgamation of what everybody thinks about the afterlife, then it's it's not the heaven of of the Scriptures. Uh, So there are all kinds of things that can take away your ambition to be in heaven. And then he, look at verse 3 and 4. What Paul is really saying in Colossians 3, 3 and 4 is, the reason you ought to be heavenly minded is this is reality. Look how he describes you. You died and your life is now 
hidden, or the word is, it's the word from which you get the word cryptic. Your life is cryptically in Christ, with Christ in God. So your life is hidden in Him now while you're on this earth. You're incognito. You're a heavenly citizen, but you look an awful lot like an earthly citizen. You're both, but it's not obvious that you belong to heaven. It's just obvious that you belong to earth. Although some of you look like you could have come from another planet. But nonetheless, right now it's, you're cryptically a heavenly citizen. Nobody else knows. But then look at verse 4. What happens when Christ returns, when Christ who is your life appears. And the word there is the word that just means a revelation. Uh, when the lid is taken off and He's revealed. When He is revealed, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So when He comes back, your real identity is known. So you have the same identity, it's just that it will be revealed. It will be known later when He comes back. And everything will be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. And we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and we shall appear like Him. So your identity will be obvious. Now it's not obvious. And the key to successful living, gentlemen, is to live in light of reality. You know this in business. If your business is failing and you keep pretending that it's not, all you're doing is digging a bigger hole and hurting more people. And you say, you know, that person's not living in reality. And you don't trust them. They're not living in reality. They're making stupid decisions because they're living in a fantasy world. And they're denying things and suppressing the truth. And that's the way so many church men live. They don't live in reality. They live like this is all there is. They live a secular mindset, like this is all this is going to be. You only go around once, grab for all the gusto you can. That's the way they're living. And it's a denial of reality. Because the reality is you're going to live forever and the best is yet to be. And the reality is that God is with you and you are cryptically in Him right now. One of the best cases of this is Second Kings chapter 6 when uh, the king of Syria gets, gets the he understands that every time he gets ready to attack the Israelites uh, they're not there. So who's the fifth column? Who's betraying? Oh, it's, it's, it's not us, said his assistants. It's this prophet over in Dothan. Well, who's this prophet? You know, it's Elisha. So they go to get Elisha, you remember? And uh, uh, Gehazi, uh, the the assistant to Elisha, goes out in the morning, oh, and he sees all these Assyrians out there waiting. And uh, and then Elisha says, "Oh, don't don't worry about that. There are more of us than there are of them." Gehazi says, "You know, this man's getting to be too old. You know, he needs to retire as prophet. You know, he can't see and he can't think straight. You know, and Gehazi's just scratching his head. And then and then Elisha prays." that Gehazi will be able to see. And then he prays uh, that he can see reality, basically. And what does he see? He sees chariots of fire surrounding the hills and surrounding the Assyrians. And so Gehazi has his eyes open to reality that God's servants and His angels are surrounding His people. And so oftentimes, you know, we need to have the old dumb blind prophet <laughs> pray for us that we can see reality. And, of course, then you know the Assyrians go blind because he prays that they'll be blind. So they can't see. 
And so, gentlemen, as you go your way today, just put your head in heaven. That's the point. And some of you may be saying, well, you know, I know some of these people. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I just want you to know I've never met a person like that. The people that I meet that aren't much earthly good are those who are certainly not heavenly minded. They're very earthly minded. And they're grabbing for all they can get out of this life. The most useful people I know, the most useful men I know, are those whose heads are in the heavenlies. But as old Samuel Rutherford the Puritan said in describing the man of God, he said he's got his head in the heavenlies, his feet firmly planted on the ground, and his hands to the plow. Now there you go. So your feet are on the ground. You're living in this life. And you're working hard. You've got your hands on the plow. But, but gentlemen, your head is in the heavenlies. And when you're thinking like that and you're plowing in order to honor the one who's on the throne in heaven where your head is, you'll plow a straight furrow. And God will give good crops. And you'll be very useful to other people. When I look at the problems in churches, the problems are not caused by men who are too heavenly minded. The problems in churches are caused by men who are way too earthly minded, not heavenly minded at all. So you will find yourself a man of peace, a man of love and joy, and a man of usefulness if you will take John's experience and make it your own and get your head out of wherever it is and get it into heaven. Let's look back at Revelation chapter 4. I'm sorry uh, if I offended any of you. Okay, so here's what John is seeing in verses 1 and 2. He's seeing that when you get to heaven, there's a throne there. There's a locus of authority. And every authority in your life, if it's proper, is derived from that place. This place, right up here in heaven. Everything's coming from there. If you want to know where the real big throne is, it's right there. That's where all the authority is. And what you want to do with your life is you want to bow to every proper authority in your life. If the, if the gentleman stops you for a speeding ticket, you, ticket, you want to say, yes, sir, yes, officer. You want to do what you're supposed to do. Go to court. Pay your fine. If you're in school, you want to do, do the assignments the teacher gives you and do it respectfully. All the rest. Every authority in your life, your boss, your board of directors, whatever it is, you want to learn to bow to them and show respect. Why? Because you know that the one on the throne in heaven wants you to do that because he has delegated the subsidiary authorities for your good and the welfare of his world and for his honor. And that's the only ultimate reason that you obey authority in this life. It's not because you're afraid of what they're going to do to you, although that's what most people do. The Christian is different. It's not just you're afraid of what they're going to do to you. It's because you fear God and you know there's a throne in heaven. It changes everything. It brings joy to all of your submission and respect that you're giving to civil authorities. So, secondly then, we notice in verses 2b and 3a, God is on that throne. That means, of course, He is in charge. You say, well, that's not saying much for God based on my life. He's in charge of this mess? Yeah, and He was in charge of the mess in the first century too. And that's just John's point. That no matter what your chaos is, gentlemen, realize that God is in charge of it. You know the old saying, God is on the throne. That's not some trite thing to try to just dismiss reality. That is reality. And the more you minister that to yourself, you begin to understand that, yes, I may have some chaos in my life, but as long as I'm looking to Him and His throne, I know that His purposes will bear good fruit in my life. 
So you go through whatever it is He has for you because He is in charge. What are the implications of this? I'd like to mention three of them. First of all, great comfort. Whatever pain or disappointment or bereavement that you're facing is not mindless. It's not purposeless. And it's certainly not ultimately hostile toward you. Now, the devil is hostile toward you, and some of your neighbors are hostile toward you, some of your competitors are hostile toward you, but the Lord is not. And you can be comforted that He's in charge of all this. And your competitors and your enemies and the ones who are trying to do you in, they can't do a thing that the Lord is not going to allow them to do. And just as in Job's case, Job lost everything except his soul. He lost his health. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. Unfortunately for him, he didn't lose his wife. She was still nagging as usual. But he did not lose his nephesh, his self. But he was assured that God was in charge. He knew that. And at the root of his being, that was his only comfort because he knew it would turn out for good and for God's glory. And, of course, you know, you get to the end of Job, and it did. Job gets his gets children back. He gets wealth back. He gets his health back. Still has his wife. Uh, so, okay, it wasn't completely cleaned up. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it was pretty. It, it was a sign of God's blessing through suffering. And I don't know what you're going through now, but I'm just telling you this, whatever it is, God is using it to get you to a higher place, to get you to this throne. So there's comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Uh, we read Isaiah 40 so many times in the Advent season. God is intending to comfort you, and He's able to do it because He's on the throne. That throne has power, not just authority. And then commitment. If this is who He is, this is the point, then we continue to commit ourselves to Him no matter what the circumstances. And some of us get into this victim thing. Oh, you know, my life's just so tough. I don't know why God does this to me, but I'm, I don't know. I guess I'll find out someday. Poor me. This is the way you think, some of you. And when you do that, you're just basically uh, taking yourself off the seat of responsibility and say, well, you know, I'm just a helpless victim. Well, God is in charge, true. But you're not a helpless victim because God is your Father. And He is empowering you to take responsibilities for your circumstances. As I tell my children about the dysfunctions that they grew up with in our family, <laughs> it's not your fault. But it is your responsibility now to do the best that you can with it. <laughs> okay? It's not your fault what you were given. But it is your responsibility to take whatever you were given and make the best of it. And so, you know, you're not responsible for your children's responsibilities right now. You may be very disappointed in something they're doing, but you're not responsible for it. You, you're responsible to encourage them, pray for them, set a godly example. But they're responsible. Well, guess what? Who's responsible for your life? Your dad who messed you up? Your mother who messed you up? No, you're responsible for your life. It's not your fault what you were given, but it's your responsibility to take what you were given and make the best of it. And what we're told here, God is on the throne which means that He's protecting you from any evil that will keep you from heaven if you're trusting in Him. He'll get you there safely, and He's going to design how He's going to do it. Your role then is to commit yourself to the One who owns all authority and power and who's worthy of all praise. So get rid of the victim stuff and let's be committed to Him. And then thirdly, courage. Look, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has ordained all things and He's numbered my days, 
He's already determined when my, when my life is up on this earth. So it's already, he's already determined it. He's already determined the way it's going to go. Why should I cower around and worry about what day that's going to be or how it's going to happen? And most of the people, when they get to the end of life, you know, if you ask them one regret, they will over and over again say, I wish I'd been bolder. That's what, if you ask old people in this room, there are a few of them. If there's one thing they would do differently, I bet a lot of them would say, you know, I would have stepped out sooner and I would have done this and I would have done that. Why don't you just pretend you're old right now? And then say, well, if I could, and then you realize, I can. I'm younger than old. And why don't you realize you've got all the grounds in the world to be, to be bold? Because you're serving the one. You belong to him. And he is on the throne. So he is in charge. Those are the implications. Notice not only he's in charge, he is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Jasper and Carnelian. Now, we don't know exactly what Jasper is. Uh, it, it appears later on in Revelation, but it seems to be a, a translucent, maybe transparent, sort of glassy sort of gem. Some would suggest it's a diamond. Carnelian is a reddish stone. And so you have this dazzling uh, appearance of uh, Jasper and Carnelian. You can look in verse 3 and it says that uh, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and then of course a rainbow resembling an emerald. There's green encircled the throne. Now, I'm going to show you a, a classic work of art. You may have seen it somewhere. Well, probably not. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't get this at Brooks Museum. Uh, <laughs> Woo! Man, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> all right. T, that's not uh, the subway. That's the throne, <laughs> believe it or not. And then white, you know, you see around there is the uh, jasper, and then there's the carnelian, the emerald rainbow. All right. So the throne is just, just sparkling and dazzling with all the light being refracted and reflected. And stones, you know, light has all the colors in it. All that stones do is they just pick out some, they just focus that light and pick out some of the, you know, the wavelengths of the light and show us part of the light. And that's the beauty of color. It just selects from this vast uh, range of wavelengths of light. And so these stones are just taking the light coming from God and and uh, simply giving us, you know, filtering out some of the light so that we get these colors. Absolutely fabulous what pure light does when it goes through some of these stones. And so this is what God's presence is like. These are the living creatures around. And there's, of course, you can tell that's thunder and lightning right there. Uh, and then here are the, the, uh, the lampstand with the seven lights on it representing the Spirit and the 24 elders' thrones there. I'll give that to you. The work of art next time you'll get it, so don't worry about it. Uh, but you can see that what's happening here is that we are being shown the beauty of God. And oftentimes uh, men will miss out on this and forget that in order to be a real servant of God, you've got to develop your, your aesthetic taste. God is the source of all beauty. And when you think about what beauty is, I mean, people have different ways of identifying it, but isn't it in some ways unity? finding unity and diversity. If you think about whether it's harmonics and music 
or its colors and shades in art or whatever it is. It's finding the harmonies and the unities in God's creation. And this is all from God. He's the one who gives harmonies. He's the one who gives the coordination of colors and so on because it emanates from His very presence. So I would say to us that if we're really getting to know God, we need to grow in our ability to see the beauty in His creation. It was so interesting in uh, uh, listening to... Um, oh, shoot. His, his, his name just flew out of my head. Uh, the man who was converted about 65, Roman Catholic, uh, Muggridge, Malcolm Muggridge. Uh, when Malcolm Muggridge was in his 80s, uh, he wrote a book and made a little movie out of it, uh, which name, of course, I also forgot. But uh, he, at the end of his life, he was recounting what really means something to him now. And uh, it, it was kind of, in some ways, macabre because he started the movie in a, in a graveyard. <laughs> there he was, you know, this 85-year-old man standing next to a grave in a graveyard just talking about death. And then he talked about life. And he started to walk along the little uh, country lane in England where the movie was being made. And he just stopped and said, you know, in my old age, he said, I, just, I look at these flowers. I'm just absolutely fascinated with these flowers. And I noticed as my own father got older and into his 80s, he took great delight in flowers. He never did before. I mean, my dad was a hard-working, hard-driving businessman and all this. And, but as he got older, he just was fascinated, especially at wildflowers and the beauty of them and the variety of them. And, you know, sometimes we need folks who have slowed down a little bit to tell the rest of you what's going on around you. Just this beautiful creation that God has made emanating from His very presence. Realize it starts in the core of His own being. So if we're worshipers of God, we're the ones who go throughout the creation and see the various things He has done and feed it back to Him in praise. But how can you do that if all you're trying to do is just survive? All you're trying to do is collect all you can, uh, get all the gusto you can. All you're trying to do is take advantage of other people and get the most you can, have the biggest pile at the end of life. Uh, if that's what you're trying to do, you're not one of His reconnaissance agents looking out over all that He's done and giving Him the glory for it. So recognize God is beautiful. Now, thirdly, let's move to verse, the, the latter half of verse 3 and we see this. God's throne is awesome. Rainbow encircles the throne. There are 24 thrones around His throne. Look at this. It's not only His big throne, but every human throne emanates from Him. They're little thrones. So He's surrounded by kings, if you will. He's surrounded by thrones. He's so great. He's the suzerain king. He has His vassal kings. And you'll notice they're the elders. And what are these 24 thrones and these 24 elders? Well, there's speculation about it. I, I, I think that probably what's being represented are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ. You've got 12 in the old, 12 in the new. You've got the whole range of God's covenant life, all those representatives, the big cheeses coming before God. But they're surrounded him, surrounding Him in little, little thrones. But the beauty of it is we are enthroned with Him. You see, the human flesh is around His throne. And what are they wearing? White they got their whites on, and they got a crown on their head. They're victorious. They get to heaven. They reign. They rule with Him. They're not the big cheese, but they're ruling. They're doing His bidding and ruling over His universe. What an exciting thing, gentlemen. 
I don't care what you've ever been CEO of, but you ain't been CEO of this. You've never had anything this big. And here it is, the universe being laid out before you. Your king is on the throne, and you're his little king ruling for him. How exciting. And then thunder and lightning. He's awesome. Peals of thunder come from his throne. No, no clouds, I guess, but just thunder and lightning because of his very presence. You know, uh, sometimes nature is the best way to discuss it. I remember one time early on in my ministry, uh, this was in Elizabethan, Tennessee. And if you've been there, it's just a little country town at the foot of the Smokies. And uh, if you look off in the distance, you see the hills doing this. And then later on, of course, the hills do this, turn into mountains. It's just a beautiful rolling hill country there. And one day, I, was, I had the, the uh, youth group. And that little church youth group would have been about eight or ten kids. And so I was talking to them. And I said, let's go outside because there's a storm coming across the valley. And we can just watch the storm come in. So we sat on the porch and we were talking about a variety of things. I don't know, Elizabeth, the high school football or something. And we just watched this storm come in, the clouds rolling in. And we could see a few peels, uh, a few strokes of lightning off in the distance. And then all of a sudden, boom! The lightning hit, struck the top of the steeple, which is in our view, just right over here to our left, up in the air, struck that steeple and bolted to the ground and just made this loud noise. And you should have seen all these kids scramble right behind me. Uh, <laughs> And we started running back to the porch, you know. He got under the porch. And ah! One little stroke of lightning. One little stroke of lightning. There are lightning bolts after lightning bolts coming from His presence. Because He is awesome. And we talk of everything now being awesome. We don't know what awesome is. And for us, awesome is kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know? Uh we're off to see the wizard, the beautiful wizard of Oz. And you get to Oz, you get to Oz, and there it is, the castle. That's awesome. And you go in the castle, and you, just, oh, you know, smoke and fire, and this deep voice, you know, speaking, you know, and telling you what. And there's a little man behind the scene manipulating everything. So what is awesome? Oh, it's a product of technology. You know, we can make anything look really spooky. And so we have our Harry Potter novels. And we have all this other stuff, magic and occult and, and you know, mysteries and all these things going on to try to create some sense of the paranormal and something beyond physical life to give us some sense that we live in a larger world. And that's all because we never believed the original awesome presence of God in the first place. And so how the Americans handle this? Well, you get to Oz and there's this God-like thing. But all, of course, what it really is is the manipulation of the philosophers and the theologians behind the scenes, little old men who really don't, you know, kind of innocent and just playing a few games. And you think you need, uh, you think you need a heart, tin man. Uh, you think you need a brain, uh, scarecrow. Uh, you think you need courage, lion? Well, you didn't really need Oz to give it to you. All you needed was to be on the pilgrimage yourself. And if you'll just get on the way, well, you'll get your heart and you'll, you'll get your brain and you'll get your courage. You see, this is the American self-reliant way. This is the way we deal with mystery. It's just really a, a, a fantastic sort of idea created by the technocrats. And you're going to get your courage by just sort of playing the game. That's the way we deal with it. And that's the way most Americans have dealt with it. The, the real key to it is self-reliance. You can have your fantasies, your Santa Clauses, and your tooth fairies and so on, but it's really up to you. 
And what John is showing us, no, there really is a great and powerful God whose throne is beautiful and awesome. There are seven lamps showing His Spirit who with the Father and the Son. We'll see the Son coming into play next chapter with the the Lamb who uh, is like a lion. So you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Trinitarian God ruling in supremacy. And then a sea of glass. What is this sea? Well, what, what does John know is the sea? The Aegean Sea is what he knows. And he's right there in the Aegean on the island of Patmos looking back into Turkey, into Asia. And he's used to that sea. And what's the Mediterranean like? Well, it's always in turmoil. It's very dangerous. Many people lose their lives in the Mediterranean. It's always rough and chaotic. And what's life like for you sometimes? Very chaotic. Very dangerous. What's the sea like before the living God? It's like glass. What does that mean? I just know when I was a teenager, I used to work in the summers in the foundry. And then after I'd get out around 4 o'clock or something like that, I'd get in a car with my friend and we'd drive 20 miles, 25 miles to Watts Bar Lake and ski until our arms fell off. <laughs> we'd just ski all afternoon. And he'd drive the boat and I'd ski and then I'd drive the boat and he'd ski. And uh, there'd be those some occasional afternoons that would turn into those, those pre-sunsetting uh, late afternoon, early evenings where everybody had gotten off the lake except ourselves. It was almost dark and only idiots would ski and we were idiots and so we would ski at dusk and everybody had gone in to get supper or get cleaned up or go back to town, go to, go to bed and everybody had left and the winds had died down and what did you say when you're out there skiing? It's like glass. And you could get on your slalom and just almost have your ears scrape the water as you slalom. Because it was so smooth. And why is it smooth? Because it's peaceful. And what John is seeing is, there's the day, gentlemen, when all your problems are going to be laid aside. You, don't, you have no idea, most of you, how much pressure you're under right now. Some of you who have retired have told me, Sandy, you don't know the pressure you've got until you're retired. And it'll take you about three months to figure it out that you were under so much pressure. So we're under pressure we don't even realize. Of course, some of you know I'm really under pressure and I know it. But let me tell you what's going to happen is that God orders everything. He's in charge and He brings peace. The sea before Him is like glass. Then there are the four living creatures and we won't take the time now, but if you look at Ezekiel, you'll find these four living creatures. So once again, John is saying that the very vision I had are the things that the prophets of old were shown about what's going to happen in the last days. These are the last days. And we're seeing the conclusion of these things. Now, lastly, uh, as you look at the latter half of verses 8 and following, uh, you find that there is the principle that sentient beings worship Him. Talo sentient just means thinking beings. You'd have a hard time getting that. Just kidding, Robert. Don't get your feelings hurt. Uh, sentient beings worship Him. Uh, now notice, first of all, they worship continually. In 8b, uh, day and night, these four living creatures never stop. They worship Him constantly. And what is this a model for? John is saying, look, I went up to heaven 
Let me tell you what's going on. While you guys are down here facing all your problems, unceasing praise of God. So if you want to have a heavenly mindset, let your mind constantly be thanking, praising, giving honor and glory to Him. It's not just something you do on Sunday morning, Sunday night. It's not just something you do when you gather your family around and pray. It's not just something you do when you have your devotions. It's unceasing in heaven. Join the heavenly beings with unceasing praise. Second, you'll notice that they worship Him very actively. As Robert Weber uh, says uh, in his books on worship, and in fact one of them is entitled, Worship is a Verb. It's not static. Worship is something you do. And some of you, uh, maybe not, if you're, this wouldn't apply to you so much if you're charismatic on one hand or Episcopalian or Roman Catholic on the other. The high liturgical churches tend to see movement. And the, the Pentecostal and charismatic churches see movement of a different sort. You know, they dance. The Episcopal church processes. You know, that's their dance, okay? So they're active and they move. But most of us in the middle, you know, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, and some of the rest of it. We tend to go to church not thinking about what we're going to do, that we're going to have movement, that we're going to come up and get communion, that we're going to move, that we're going to show expression. No, we go to church expecting them to move. The choir, the performers, the preacher, other people up front are going to do something for us, and we're statically observing the whole thing. It's a distortion and a perversion of worship. Worship, you will see in the Scriptures, is always very active and engaging. And notice this with the elders, what they did in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down. There's some movement. Last time we had somebody fall down in church, it's because they broke a hip. (laughs) Fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him. Worship Him. What is worship? It means to serve or to do obeisance or to speak out His praise. There's very active movement going on here. It involves the bodies and the lips. And that ain't kissing, boys. That's praising. And then they put, cast their crowns before His throne. So they take their treasures, their trophies, all the things they're proud of, all the things that they might otherwise obsess over, and they cast it down before the Lord and say, Lord, You be praised. This is because of You. So everything that I have, everything that I am, everything I ever hope to be, if it's good, it's because of you, and I give it here to you. There's worship. And let me just ask you, in your personal worship, in your corporate worship, is this what's happening? Where you're going ready to give something? Are you eager? Or do you show up five minutes late? Well, couldn't get the kids ready. Well, couldn't roll out of bed. Well, it's an important news spot on TV. Gentlemen, when we go to church worship, what we're doing is we're asking the Lord from on high to come from His throne and visit us as a corporate body. And I would say if He's awesome and He's on the throne and we're the performers, we better be there on time. And we better be rehearsed and well rested and ready to go. So I'd suggest show up for the prelude. Get your heart ready and engage and sing the hymns and engage the liturgies and read the Scriptures and listen to what's being said and respond to it in your own heart, heart to the Lord. This is active worship. And then notice it's intelligent worship, and we'll close with this. First of all, for who He is. And you see this in the song in verse 8. The song of the four living creatures is basically praising God for who He is. 
Holy, holy, holy. Gentlemen, you can read your Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and you will not find any other trait that is mentioned three times like this. We never told uh, love, love, love. Good, good, good. Merciful, merciful, merciful. This is the Hebraic way of emphasizing a word. We italicize it, underline it, asterisk, whatever. This is the Hebraic way of doing it. You emphasize it by repeating it. And he doesn't just repeat it once. He repeats it twice. Holy, holy, holy. If you're to pick one trait of the Lord that is emphasized in the Scriptures, it would be this one. Holy means to be set apart. He is holy other. He is sanctified. He is pure. There is no shadow of turning in Him. He is holy. And if that's the one that we serve, of course, we're supposed to be holy. As Peter says, repeating the words of Moses in Leviticus, be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. So we're to copy Him. So first of all, because of His holiness. And then because the Lord God Almighty, He's powerful. So He's awesome because He's holy. He's awesome because He's powerful. And He's awesome because He's eternal who was and is and is to come. He always is. Go figure. That will blow your brains. Your fuses can't handle that one. All you can do is affirm it. You can't understand it. He's eternal. He's awesome. This is the God we serve. So let's lift up our heads. Stop pouting. Start act, stop acting like victims. Stop acting as though we're the ones who are to be pitied in this world. We serve an awesome God and we're going to be with Him. And then secondly, you see in the Song of the Elders... We intelligently worship Him for what He has done. What has He done? Well, for starters, He created all things. Everything that is or was or ever shall be, He made it. And He made it out of nothing. Try that one on for size. When's the last time you made something out of nothing? You don't do that. All you can do is take something and try to rearrange the molecules. You can't make something out of nothing. He did. And the 24 elders are bowing before Him, exclaiming His greatness, saying, Lord, you are holy and you made all things out of nothing. Think about it. Now, what difference does this make? We've already seen comfort, commitment, courage, and praise. It'll change your life. It really will. When the throne of God comes into your mentality. Now, what we're going to see in the coming chapters is that from this all-controlling, all-good, all-beautiful, all-wise throne comes the judgments against the enemies of the church and comes the validation and the salvation of the church itself. All that's working out through history is coming right from that throne. So get your head in the heavenlies, keep your feet firmly planted on the ground, and your hands on that plow. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this vision of heaven that we so desperately need in our personal lives, in our city, in our nation, and in this world. And we pray that we may join the 24 elders, the sons of Israel, and the apostles of Jesus who have gone before us and who are sharing in the power and the glory of the living God. And that we, like them, our brothers, may step up and realize that's our destiny too. And may we live in this life as men who have such a destiny and have such a vision for reality as it really is 
not as we've been told that it is. And may we, O Lord, trust You. And may we look forward to the day when we shall see You upon Your throne like Jasper and Carnelian, surrounded by a rainbow as emerald and with thunder and lightning emanating from Your throne. O God, may we live joyfully for that day as we live this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you, gents.